On today's episode, we're going to go behind the scenes of book publishing and talk a little bit about why chapbooks cost what they cost. Welcome to episode 33 of The Chapbook. I'm your host, Noah Stetzer. And I'm Ross White. Noah and I run an all-volunteer press called Bull City Press, and we make chapbooks as well as full-length books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Ross and I started this podcast to celebrate our love of chapbooks, to go behind the scenes of the publishing process, and to highlight the folks who write chapbooks and the folks who make chapbooks. All right, Ross, this is the point where I would insert a cash register sound effect. Oh, you need not do that. There's no money in chapbooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then we have to make that that losing sound effect from The Price is Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't I strike it rich with my chapbook, Ross? Oh, gosh. Well, okay, so... Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like the economics of the book industry are a little bit mysterious. And I think that's compounded by the fact that so often chapbook publishers are working really, really hard to keep their prices down. You're going to find a lot of chapbook publishers out there like us. They're volunteers. They do this because they feel like it's a good thing to do in the world. And profit is not their primary motivation. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to use Glass Poetry Press as an example. Y'all know that I love Glass Poetry Press, and I think Anthony Frame is just wonderful. Those chapbooks, the last time I checked, were priced at eight fifty a pop. And friends, there is no way that Anthony is doing anything other than just like recouping the costs so that he can make more chapbooks. Like I just don't see it. And granted, we're going to talk about some costs today that not every chapbook publisher is going to have. But I, I hope by the time this episode is over, you walk out thinking, wow, my publisher is selling my chapbook for $12. We should be charging more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you make a great, um, a great point in reminding us about Glass uh, and particularly what Tony's doing there, because one of the things that I think presses like Bull City and Glass are confronted with pretty regularly is sort of trade-offs, right? Like what what are the things that we're going to do with our volunteer hours versus what are the things we're actually going to pay for versus what can't we just, there are things we just can't afford to do, at least at this time. Right, right. Well, let's maybe run through what some of those costs look like for a publisher. And maybe we can talk a little bit about where we volunteer our time and where we've just got to pony up. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with acquisitions? Because I think most chapbook writers think, oh, the costs of my books start at the moment at which I am selected, but that's not actually true. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so when you're talking about acquisitions, are you talking about submissions? Yeah, I'm talking about the fact that in order to acquire a book, we've got to find the book somewhere. And for many presses, we use open submissions or contest submissions. If it's a contest submission, then yeah, there's some revenue coming in. But for many of us who have some form of free uh, reading period, in Bull City's case, we also have a pay what you want reading period, that has to sit on a system like Duosumo or Submittable or the CLMP Submissions Manager. And you've got to pay for that. The CLMP submissions manager is a one-time fee, but then you've got to pay for the server hosting. 
Submittable is a not insignificant fee, folks. A lot of journals are now charging $3 reading fees. And we're like, oh, you know, that seems like an outrageous amount to read one submission. But recognize Submittable's taking the lion's share of that. And am am I right in um, guessing when presses or journals run a submission window using Submittable, where they say like, we're going to cap it at a certain number of submissions, that's really in keeping with whatever tier of Submittable they have. Is that right? That's right. Certain Submittable plans limit the number of submissions you can receive on that tier of plan, and you've got to pay more if you want to read more. Got it. Got it. Okay. So what are the next costs that um, are incurred with regards to publishing? Well, once you've selected the manuscript, then you've got to figure out how are you going to acquire it? Some presses accept the book and say, we're going to publish your book. Hooray. (laughs) Whereas other presses say, we're going to either pay you up front to acquire all rights to the chapbook, or we're going to pay you an advance against royalties. Please recognize not every advance on a book gets made up. So uh, I, I don't think I understand that one. Could you could you slow that one down for me? So what's an advance against royalties mean? All right. So whenever you sell a book, if you pay royalties, you're agreeing to give some percentage of the sale price to the author. Got it. If your book is listed at $12, that's not actually the price that the publisher is selling it for in a lot of cases. because If you've got distribution, the distributor has a markup and then the retailer has a markup. Okay. So the publisher may only make $3.30 on that $12 cover price book, but the publisher is going to pay some percentage of that $3.30 to the author. Sometimes it's 8%, sometimes it's 10%. So an advance against royalties is a payment based on the expected royalties that are that are going to be paid out to the author in the future. Uh, so if I, I pay you a $100 advance, Noah, right. your book needs to earn $100 in royalties for us to be even. Got it. And only after that are you going to see additional checks. Got it. I see. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, moving on, uh, there are other steps along the process, right? Um, there are more things that happen before the book goes from acquisition to on the shelf at a bookstore. Oh, boy, there sure are. Well, the first thing is the editor who's working with you, their time's got to be paid for or volunteered. And we volunteer that. But if you're a full-time employee at a publishing house that focuses on chapbooks, where does your salary come from? Well, it's got to come from somewhere. And so often that is a portion of the sales. Somebody's got to proof that manuscript. And so that's either got to be volunteered or paid out. Now, proofers generally aren't full-time staff. They're usually contract employees or um, you know fee-for-service employees. So they'll do the job and bill on an hourly basis. The designer also is going to have to be paid. And again, sometimes that's hourly. Sometimes there's a sunk cost for X number of designs, and then the author's got to pick one of those. And the designer often will be working from cover art. And if you're using cover art from a, an established artist, then you're going to have to pay for that cover art. Now, some cover art is going to be from the public domain. That's generally items that were created in 1928 or before, or items that have been created since with a very specific licensing term saying, look, you don't have to pay me to use this. Does design work also include things inside the book? I mean, beyond the cover. It sure does. Somebody's got to typeset the book and make it look beautiful on the selected page size. 
Somebody's got to put those page numbers on there and make sure that they line up with the table of contents. This is a place where I think there are some real superheroes in the field and they're totally unsung. You never notice interior design unless your book is not readable, unless for some (laughs) reason something's gone wrong. But the best designs on an interior of a book are almost entirely invisible to the reader. No one's like, I'm having such a pleasurable time with this perfectly (laughs) sized and spaced and kerned font. (laughs) As someone who has struggled through uh, uh, Microsoft Word to make the table of contents and the page numbers match up, I'm happy that someone else is taking care of that. So those are all the people who are kind of involved before the book even leaves the publishing house. But not every publisher prints the books in-house. I know some really wonderful publishers who've got multiple laser printers. And when Mm -hmm. it comes time to publish a book, they're just running those printers nonstop. And then they're stapling or hand sewing the books. That is an enormous amount of work. Oh my God. And this is just my opinion, but I feel confident that almost any publisher that hand makes their own books is never making back the cost of their time for printing and binding because it is so time consuming and it's backbreaking labor. Having just hand stapled issues of inch for years and years and years, (laughs) I can tell you eventually you're like, if I ever see another stapler again, I'm going to murder somebody. (laughs) You're sore. I mean, you are sore after you have stapled a thousand of a book or a magazine. It's punishing. I can't even imagine beyond stapling the chapbooks that have string or thread in the binding, like hand done that way. I just can't imagine the kind of time and attention that 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 requires. Yeah. Or glue. Oh, gosh. Right. Right. (laughs) I got to give a shout out to my publisher, Unicorn Press, because Andrew Salters not only hand makes all the paperbacks, but he actually hand makes all the hardbacks. That's about an hour per book. And when he sells a hardback chapbook, he's selling it for 20 bucks. Wow. You know, but also factor in all of these other costs that we're going to talk about and his time. The man is losing money left and right. And he just doesn't view it that way because he doesn't charge for his time. What an amazing human being. (laughs) And he does gorgeous work. Oh, my God. But look, you know, Bull City, we send out most of our books to a printer. We use Bookmobile in Minneapolis and they cost a little bit more, but we use them because their customer service is maybe the best customer service on the planet. Shout out to Devin Koch, our CSR, (laughs) who is like the best human being. And Bookmobile has done things to save us money over the years, but mostly to save us from our own stupidity. When I've made mistakes, they've caught them and oh, I'm so grateful to them. And Bookmobile, if I'm not mistaken, has also been really open to trying new and different things with us. I'm thinking of uh, Michael Bazette's uh, The Temple uh, and the way we handled that book last summer or the summer before. I can't remember. Yeah, well, we use gold foil stamping on that book. And for them, that's not new and different, but it's definitely new and different for us. <laughs> we've got something We've got something in the hopper that we haven't tried before. And I know Bookmobile is just going to like usher us right through it and make it look beautiful. So I'm really excited. But think about uh, part of the reason that we pay a little more for Bookmobile. A, we get that excellent customer service. B, they've got to buy their paper. They've got to buy their ink. They've got to have their binding equipment and all the personnel to do the digital pre-flight layout, all the personnel to pack and ship. And then we've got to pay for the shipping. 
And with recent supply chain issues, some of their costs have gone up as well. It's hard to get paper right now, actually. So the printer takes on the lion's share or pretty much the whole share, now that I think about it, of actually creating the actual book. Right. So when so when do we come back into the into the equation? Like once the books are ready at the printer, they, do they ship them to us? Well, why don't we talk about that in part two of this episode? Because we've got a lot more to tell you. And, you know, we like to keep our little chat book short. So, friends, if you have enjoyed part one of this episode, well, go ahead and get subscribed. And you know what? Tell all your friends. We're on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and all the other major pod places. If you have a moment, let us know what you think. Rate us five stars and send in your ideas, your questions, and suggestions to our email at chatbook at bullcitypress.com. The best way to find out what we're up to is to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bullcitypress or visit bullcitypress.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ross White. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at DC Noah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And part two coming next week. Thanks, everybody. Hey, guys, I'm Jackie. I'm Rachel. And I'm Theo. We're the hosts of Fire the Canon, the podcast that covers the weird and wonderful details hidden in works of classic literature. We break down the plots of masterpieces in the Western canon and generally just make each other laugh. Half comedy, half analysis. Mm, not sure about that ratio. We mean we keep it light, but smart. So join us every Thursday on the podcatcher of your choice or visit firethecanonpod.com. And remember, canon is spelled C A N O N. Nice. Nice. <laughs>